reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 50. And that can be found on page 817 and page 818 of the Bible under your seat. It's Matthew 12, verses 38 to 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But when he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Mike. On behalf of the elders, welcome to Trinity. If you're new here, welcome. Happy to be with you here this morning. I'm excited to be continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. Here at Trinity, we believe that one of the primary ways that God forms his people is through the preaching of the word. And so we preach the word in three main ways. Sometimes you'll find us walking through the entire story of the Bible because it's through God's story that we come to understand our own story. And so that's called biblical theology. You've seen us do that twice in the past year. Sometimes what you'll see us do is we'll just take sort of topics, just maybe cultural topics or things that folks tend to go through, and we'll see what the Bible says to the to, to different parts of life. You'll see us do that this summer. But what you'll most often see us do is just walk through whole books of the Bible. The, the people that God used to write the Bible were, were basically literary geniuses, right? They were incredible. So in order for us to really be formed by God's word, we need to, to dive into the meat of what God brought about through these writers. And so that's why we're committed to doing things like walking through a giant 28-chapter book like Matthew, right? Speaking just for myself, I know that 
it's been awesome growing in the grace of God and, and delighting in him more as we walk through this book. It's been just invariably a pleasure to, to be studying it. And so my prayer is that you would be formed by it as well. So before we jump in, let's, let's pray, and then we'll get into the text pretty quickly. Lord, I, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit this morning. That whatever I say that is not in keeping with your word, um, that you would bring that to attention um, in my mind and the minds of the listeners so that we um, can kind of do away with, with that. And anything I say that is in keeping with your word, I pray that you would do away with our pride and do away with our stubbornness that we would receive from you what you have for us in your scriptures that more and more you would form us into the people that, that you created us to be. We love you, Lord. Amen. So I want to jump in right away with a question. And the question is, who is the true family of God? This is a question that gets straight to the heart of our spirituality, of our lives. According to Jesus, what does it mean to actually have a connection with the divine? There's a lot of talk for you know among different competing spiritualities, different ways of, of thinking about how to get in touch with God or the divine or, or whatever word that they might choose. And, and in general, there's sort of this feeling in our culture that all these ways are, are legitimate ways and all of these ways will, in fact, get you in touch with the divine. And I think what we're going to find is that Jesus has a really different way of thinking about it. That instead, Jesus is going to tell us today exactly what it means to become the true family of God. What it means to be truly known by God, because we do believe that God is a person. What it means to be accepted by God. What it means to belong to him, because we believe that at the core of being human is to belong to God. So we're gonna find three things that are essential to become the true family of God. First, the true family of God are those who believe. Let's reread verses 38 through 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. So again, this is part of a larger conversation that started last week. They answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So again, this week we're actually in the second half of a larger dialogue that we started digging into last week. And it's a dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus. And last week we saw Jesus apply some serious pressure to the Pharisees, right? That, that he was forcing them to realize that if they do not side with Jesus, they will be siding against the very God that they say they follow. It's this bold statement. It speaks from a ton of authority. And so the Pharisees, they respond to, and they ask Jesus for a sign. In other words, they want Jesus to prove 
that he has the right to say what he just said, right? They want Jesus to prove that he has a right to say what he just said. So they're responding with a lot of skepticism. They're not going to take it at face value that Jesus has this kind of authority. And Jesus refuses. Jesus refuses to give them a sign. Why does Jesus refuse? Wouldn't it be so much easier if he just performed a sign that was like undeniable to them and then they'd all just be changed because they saw this sign, right? Aren't they just applying some honest intellectual skepticism? Shouldn't Jesus engage with them on this? I think it's important for us to talk about why Jesus doesn't. So here at Trinity, we really value the life of the mind. We believe that God has given humans reason, that he's given humans discernment, and we celebrate that. It's an act of worship to use your God-given intellect for the Lord, for his glory. Now, here's why I bring that up. Not all questioning is bad. Some of you may be on the fence about Christianity. Some of you may know somebody who is on the fence about Christianity, and they're working through legitimate questions, and they're really trying to find the answers, and you shouldn't condemn them for that. That's something to be patient with. It's somebody, something to work with them on. It's a process that, that I think it's, is important to go through for, for a number of people. Like, we shouldn't just walk unreflectively into discipleship. But that's not what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees aren't skeptical. They're stubborn. They have decided before the conversation even began that Jesus is not Messiah. And so whatever Jesus is going to do to prove that he's Messiah will inevitably con contradict the you know, rock-solid foundational truth that Jesus isn't Messiah. So clearly anything he does to prove that he is Messiah, it's already ruled out from the get-go, right? We're not dealing with skepticism. We're dealing with stubbornness. They aren't searching for truth. They're searching for the truth that they want. They aren't finding it in Jesus. They're waiting for a Messiah that will act the way they think Messiah should act. They don't think Jesus is the kind of Messiah God approves of. And so Jesus, here in this section, he turns the tables on them. He tells them that they're not the followers that God approves of. Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous generation. They want Jesus to cater to their demands. Jesus, give us a sign. But he refuses, and instead he gives them this really cryptic statement. The only sign that the Pharisees will get will be the sign of Jonah. So in the Old Testament, we find this short little four-chapter book. It's included in the, the Minor Prophets. It's called the Minor Prophets. It's entitled Jonah. It follows the, this messenger, Jonah, from God. He's, he's a, this messenger sent from God, and he's sent to the city of Nineveh. So Nineveh was a major city in the Assyrian Empire, and it was famous for just ruthless violence. I mean, these guys were savage. They, they literally built their reputation on the, the horrors that they, would, that they would commit against other humans. And so God sends Jonah there to announce that God's justice is coming. And Nineveh needs to repent. So if you know the story, you know that, that Jonah originally refuses, right? 
He does not like Nineveh. He does not want to get within a certain radius of the city of Nineveh. And so he decides he's going to run. He runs the opposite direction to the city of Tarshish, gets on a ship, ends up being thrown overboard and swallowed by a giant fish of some kind. And so what should have killed him, i.e. drowning or being eaten, instead after a couple days in the fish, he's spat back out, right? He's spat back out. And after that experience, he decides that he's going to do what God called him to do. He goes to Nineveh and calls them to repent. And the miracle there is that they do. They do. So we see this incredible scene where Nineveh repents before God. So Jonah is written, if you read, you know, again, the little four-chapter book, there's not a lot of detail. It's very spare writing. And so you never totally know if the Ninevites knew the sign of Jonah, right? It's not totally clear if they actually were, like, aware that this guy who's announcing judgment on them had just been eaten and subsequently regurgitated by some giant aquatic animal, right? Like, it's never totally clear if they know that or not. In fact, it's it's completely unaddressed. And that's not so much the point to the author of Jonah. Nor is it really the point for Jesus. The point is not whether or not the Ninevites knew. The point is that something happened with Jonah that validated him as the true messenger of God. Something had happened with Jonah that validated him as the true messenger of God. Like, if, if Jonah was not bringing the message of God, why would God keep him from drowning? Right? If he was not engaged in some supernatural task, then God would have let him drown. Right? Like there would have been no miraculous thing to make sure that he brought the message because he he wouldn't have been the messenger of God, right? He would have just been some guy in the middle of the sea, right? But instead, this incredible thing happens to Jonah because he actually is the messenger from God. God operating in this very imperfect man, Jonah. And so it's something that we as the reader are supposed to encounter. So what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that something is going to take place. And that thing is going to validate him as the true messenger of God. Something is going to happen that the Pharisees need to pay very close attention to. Because it's going to prove Jesus to be the prophet greater than Jonah. Like Jonah, Jesus will be buried, not in the gullet of a fish, but he he calls it in the heart of the earth. The image is clear. Jesus is going to become a corpse. And then in three days, he won't be anymore. He's talking, of course, about the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. At the core of Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. We believe that Jesus physically, bodily was raised from the dead, that it wasn't a metaphor that the early church was using to describe something else, that they actually thought that Jesus had risen from the dead. That, that people who had encountered him sat down with a pen and paper and wrote out their eyewitness account of this man they knew who had died coming back to life. And those writings became our New Testament, right? At the core of Christian faith is the resurrection. Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, he actually said that if the resurrection didn't truly happen, then this whole Christian movement, this whole messianic sect of Judaism, it's all in vain and you should pity us. Like, that's in our Bible, (laughs) right? Like, what a ridiculous thing to put 
in the scriptures if, you, if Paul really didn't truly believe that this took place, that's in our Bibles, the resurrection is the most forceful reason to become a Christian, and there are valid historical reasons for believing it. If you're curious to study that more, I don't have time to go into it all during the sermon, but I encourage you to check out the chapter on it in A Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, or uh, you can tackle the the Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright, which is, I'm actually in the middle of it myself. So you can join me. It's really big. So now Jesus makes this prophecy, right? So he makes this prophecy that he's going to be buried in the heart of the earth and then brought out. He's going to be resurrected. But he has some additional words for the Pharisees because he knows that even the resurrection will not, in the end, convince them. He knows that the resurrection itself will not have the power to convince them. Because again, right, they've already ruled out the possibility that Jesus could possibly be Messiah. So the resurrection won't convince them. They will come up with another way of explaining it. The disciples will say, we'll steal a body or whatever. They'll come up with another explanation. Jesus knows this. And so he warns them. He says that in the judgment, all humans across history are going to be raised to life. And they will stand before the creator and God will establish justice. And Jesus says that those bloodthirsty Ninevites will condemn you, the Pharisees. That they will stand at the judgment and condemn the Pharisees. The Ninevites were, were, were Gentiles, bloodthirsty in addition. So they were outside the people of God And they will still be the ones to condemn these insiders. The queen of Sheba, or the queen of the south, as Jesus calls her, she was somebody that came from miles away because she heard that God was operating in King Solomon with incredible wisdom, and she came to him because she believed that. Again, an outsider, not somebody who has the law, not somebody who who should know Yahweh, an outsider, recognizes the work of Yahweh, and she will stand at the judgment and condemn the Pharisees. How does that happen? It's kind of like when you're in school, right? Maybe you slacked off on an assignment. You just decided you didn't really want to do it, didn't want to take it seriously, and so you don't do all the work that you should, right? And you just, you tell yourself, well, I think this is going to be hard for everybody, right? I'm pretty sure this grade is going to be curved, whatever, so you do some lousy work to basically say that you did it, and you turn it into your teacher, and your teacher addresses you, and is like, this is really, really bad. Why did you not do your work, right? And so the excuses start flying, right? Well, it was really hard. It was very, very difficult. It was a very difficult assignment. And so, you know, I just figured, you know, I just did my best. What if your teacher then, to challenge you, turned to the rest of the class and asked, who else thought this was hard? And your classmates betray you in that moment by being honest. And they all say, none of us thought it was hard. This one was super easy. At that moment, you would be condemned by your classmates' example. Their example leaves you without excuse. The Ninevites recognized Yahweh in Jonah. The queen of the south recognized Yahweh through Solomon. But the Pharisees are not recognizing Yahweh in the flesh. So how do we avoid their mistake? We recognize Jesus to be who he is. 
We believe. We believe. Now, if we believe, though, if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then something will begin to take place in us. We'll realize that a pressure has been put on our lives to align with what we believe. And so we repent. Those who repent are the true family of God. Verses 43 to 45. When the unclean spirit has gone, this is Jesus talking still, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So then it goes, and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees. And remember, this whole conversation takes place in the context of an exorcism. Right? If you remember from last week, for those of you who are here, this whole conversation started because Jesus cast out a demon and the Pharisees started something with them about it. So this, this whole conversation started around a demon, and so when Jesus wants a parable, he does a parable about a demon, right? So I don't know that we should take this brief parable as like a crash course in demonology, though. So some folks will read this and they'll think like, okay, so Jesus is explaining how demons operate, Maybe, but everything that I'm reading in the text says that this is more of a parable. So we just don't know how much of this actually applies to the spiritual realm. And so I want to be a little bit conservative about how I interpret it and just, for, for our purposes this morning, sort of just take it as, as a parable, like, like any other of Jesus' parables. So this one is interesting, and it's, it's kind of cryptic. It's not, it's not too easy to interpret, but I think that we can circle in on it pretty well. So what happens in this parable? Let's walk through it together. So you've got this demon, and from the demon's perspective, a human host is like an apartment, right? It's a place to live. It's a place to dwell. It's a house. But this demon just got evicted, right? So he is sent out. He's exercised out of this human. He's, he begins to wa- wander through what Jesus calls waterless places, so uninviting, arid, desert places. He's homeless for a while. It's miserable, and so the demon resolves he's going to go back to his old human host and just check out what the old place looks like now, right? So he goes back, and what he sees is that the place has been made clean. The place has been made clean. I think Jesus is deploying that word for a reason, right? This is an unclean spirit that gets cast out. He goes back, and the place is clean. So I think there's some wordplay going on here. And so it's, it's no longer fit for an unclean spirit like him. It's been made clean, but interestingly enough, it's also empty. It's also empty. Another tenant hasn't moved in. And so this demon decides that he's going to, to squat on the property. And he's going to make it really, really hard to force him to leave again. And so he goes and he gets a bunch of other tenants, right? And they all return to the same host and they all take up residence so that they're there to stay, and the place is worse than how it began. So here's where I'm at with this parable. I think that Jesus is saying that his ministry has been like a generation-wide exorcism. 
that Jesus has shown up and he has bound the strong man, like we talked about last week, that through the ministry of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is being announced to this group of people and they have this opportunity now to recognize in Jesus the kingdom. And so what he does, he's like leaving the generation clean. Jesus has evicted the demon, right? This opportunity can't be wasted. A decision has to be made. Jesus isn't just restraining Satan so that everybody in this generation can remain neutral. He's freeing people so that they can turn from the darkness. In other words, so that they can repent. And so notice how deeply off-putting this would be, right? This whole conversation began around an exorcism and how the, the Pharisees didn't like how Jesus is exercising. They, th they think Jesus is exercising because he has a demon. He's using the power of the demon in him, Satan, to cast out demons. And now the by the end of the conversation, Jesus proposes that they're the ones with the demon, right? That they're the ones in need of an exorcism. Jesus is saying that he has exercised the demon of this generation, metaphorically speaking. In other words, a decision has to be made by the Pharisees, by this whole group of people, by us. Neutrality is not an option. That house needs to be occupied. Jesus is making it clean, but it should not remain empty. It's the choice to repent, to turn away. That's what Jesus, what Christians mean when we talk about repentance. In Greek, the word that gets translated as repent means turn around. It means to turn away. So imagine a long road. On one end of the road is old creation. On the other end is new creation, right? In new creation, this is where everything is exactly the way God wants it. It's where the rule of God is seen. It's the place where everything is exactly the way it should be. And on old creation, that's where humanity's will is done. When hum where, where Satan and humanity's rule is seen. Where humans convince themselves they are autonomous. Where our desires aren't questioned. In other words, it's where things are not what they should be. Old creation and new creation. Now let's say I'm on that road, okay? I'm on that road and I'm facing toward old creation. It doesn't matter how close I am to new creation when I start out on that road. I could be at the gate, but if I am facing old creation, I will not end up in the new. I will continue down that same path I could be sightseeing, I could be taking my time, dilly-dallying, it doesn't matter, I will get there eventually. Jesus isn't asking anyone to suddenly become perfect. Repentance doesn't mean we've arrived. It means we've begun to walk in the right direction. It means we've rejected the old way and we've struck out toward new creation by the power of the gospel. It means we've, we've come to recognize that the path we have been walking on is a path that leads away from God, leads away from his kingdom, which means it leads away from truth, goodness, and beauty, and it means that we stop in our tracks and pull an about face. 
here's the thing, it doesn't matter where I'm starting out. I could be at the very gates of hell. My life could be a mess. I could have a thousand miles ahead of me, and Jesus is saying it wouldn't change a thing. That progress could be slow. I might be dragging myself along. I might still be magnetized to sin, to old habits, to destructive desires, and it wouldn't matter because my face is set to new creation. And I'm not walking this path by my own strength. I'm walking it by the strength of, of God's grace, by the promise that if I believe and if I set my face to Jerusalem, come what may, God will get me there. Those who repent are the true family of God. But then something else becomes clear. Repentance always goes hand in hand with obedience. Those who follow Jesus are the true family of God. Verses 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So we realized that we're in a house. This whole conversation has been taking place in the house. And he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So again, at this point in the conversation, Jesus gets approached by somebody in this home, and he's told that his, his mothers and brothers are, are waiting outside. And I don't know about you, but if I were one of those brothers, I'd be like kind of hurt. <laughs> by what Jesus said. I can't like avoid that, but Jesus is making a major point. And it's a point that, that those brothers and, and his, his mother took to heart. You know, who knows where they were at this point in terms of who they thought Jesus was. But, but we know that post-resurrection, they were pretty unanimous in who they thought he was, right? So he says that his true family has nothing to do with genetics. His true family has nothing to do with biology. Being ethnically Jewish doesn't matter. It doesn't determine who's in the family. Being born of Mary, wife of Joseph, does not matter. It doesn't determine who is truly in his family. He says that those who do God's will are his family. Now, it's really easy for us to hear that and just feel utterly discouraged, right? Like, what hope is there for me? There's so much that I still do that isn't God's will. I've believed, I've repented, but I'm very much a work in progress. How can I possibly do enough of God's will? Like, what is that line? At what point can I feel like I'm in the family? How can I do enough? And if you feel that sense of discouragement, then pay attention to what Jesus does at this moment, okay? So Jesus says this to a room of different sorts of people. You know, maybe there's, there's members of the, of the crowd, which, you know, oftentimes Matthew points out that a lot of the crowd was still kind of like feeling things out when it came to Jesus. They weren't totally decided. But he doesn't mention anybody from the crowd. Instead, he only mentions two groups of people in that house. There's the Pharisees and there's the disciples. So you've got the Pharisees. If anybody is doing God's will, it's these guys right? We talked about last week. They're the good guys. They're the good, devout people. If anyone's doing God's will, it's these Pharisees. And then you've got the disciples. 
a group of people who are famous for incompetence, right? Like, they are famous for all the ways they get it wrong. So, list, like, let's do a list of their achievements. So, a list of their achievements would include trying to refuse food to hungry crowds, blocking children from seeing Jesus, fighting over who gets to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom, and then eventually abandoning him in a garden full of armed soldiers. All right, so that's the list of the disciples' achievements. They have no right giving spiritual advice, right? If you're just taking it as, like, who has their stuff together, it's the, the Pharisees. It's not the disciples. The, they, the disciples would be the first one to t- ones to tell you that they are nothing special, and yet who is it that Jesus gestures toward when he mentions those who do the will of God? The disciples, Jesus points to the disciples and says that they're the ones doing the will of God. Doing the will of the Father who is in heaven. How in the world does that work? The Pharisees take the Bible seriously. They follow its laws. They do what it says. What sets the disciples apart? I think the answer comes down to relationship. There's this Wonderful little show out of Ireland called Moon Boy. Very funny, very cute. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It was on Netflix, or not Netflix, but Hulu briefly, and then it basically just disappeared into obscurity. It's just utterly cute and, and great. It centers around the Moon family. And one, one episode, you have the arrival of Uncle Danny. Uncle Danny comes to the Moon house. He's the brother of Liam, who's the, the sort of father of the family. And Danny's very rough around the edges, right? The, the son in the family, Martin, little Martin, is very, like, taken with him because he's a street musician, and apparently he, like, met you too, and, you know, so Martin's really into him. Liam, the brother, is very much not into him. Uncle Danny's been away for a long time, and he only visits on occasion because he travels so often. So at one point, Uncle Danny, he, he asks Liam, the, the father, if he'd like to go and visit their dad in the nursing home. And Liam is hemming and hawing. He's reluctant. It's like a chore to him. But he does it because he doesn't want Uncle Danny to show him up. And there's this weird little power dynamic. Anyway, so he goes and tells Martin, like, all right, come on, we're going to go visit Granddad. And Martin's response is, why? It's not Sunday. <laughs> so, so they finally get over there, and it's clear that Liam has this terrible relationship with his dad. Just a terrible relationship. Clearly the family, they, they visit Granddad more often. They're there every Sunday, but there's no relationship there. Liam doesn't truly care about his dad. He's just going through the motions so he can think of himself as a good son. But then Uncle Danny comes into the room. And, and, and Granddad just lights up. And, and Uncle Danny's showing him pictures from his travels, and they're talking, and they're enjoying each other. How is that possible? Danny's been gone for months. He rarely gets to visit because he travels so often. And yet it's clear that Granddad approves of Danny and not of Liam. The difference is relationship. That Danny wants to be with his dad. Danny knows his dad. Danny wants to be close to his dad. The Pharisees follow God so that they can look at their track record and say, I'm godly, I'm awesome, right? The Pharisees follow Jesus because they want to be near to Jesus. They want Jesus to be king. They want the world to look the way he wants it to look. They want to be changed into the people he wants them to be because they love Jesus. Obedience is important no matter what. Following Jesus is non-negotiable. 
But there's a big difference between the way the Pharisees follow God and the way the disciples follow God. There's no such thing as a relationship with God without obedience. I, I have to say that to be faithful to the text. Because in the same way, like, no matter how affectionate Danny might feel toward his dad, that affection would go nowhere if he never visited, right? But because Danny loves his dad, he still has this relationship that Liam can't get despite his devout visiting. So even though Liam is more devout, more, more, devout, more dutiful, he's there more often, Danny proves himself to be granddad's true family. Because he loves granddad. The disciples prove themselves to truly be Jesus' family because they love Jesus. And they want Jesus to tell them how to live. And in being obedient, they show that they love him. Jesus in the Gospel of John says that those who love me will follow my commands. And that's not a works righteousness thing. It's just the reality of our relationship to Jesus. Danny loves granddad, so he visits him. Disciples love Jesus, so they obey him. And the grace of God is there to cover over our failures. Because perfect obedience means nothing without love. In the Old Testament, God says that he desires mercy more than sacrifice. He desires the hearts of his people more than the rituals they go through the show to like prove their spirituality. But the true family of God are those who follow out of love for their Lord. So who are the true family of God? Those who believe, those who repent, and those who follow. So maybe some of you are here today and you're like the Pharisees. Your behavior is what gives you a sense of security. When you struggle to feel okay with yourself, the way that you comfort yourself is by looking back on your track record and saying, well, I was good here, I was good here, I was good here, I've got it, lay your head on the pillow and go to sleep. You think of yourself as an exemplary Christian who deserves the praise and attentions of others but your heart is not turned toward God. And one of the things you fear most in life is that somebody would present your wrongs to you in a way that's undeniable. Your greatest fear is that you would have to be confronted with your faults. Because if you do, if you have to have that confrontation, you know this whole image of yourself is going to crumble. And I would say that would be the best thing for you. Jesus' love is waiting, and it is big enough to swallow up your faults. So you neither have to fear them, nor do you have to remain in them. Believe, repent, and follow. Now, maybe some, some others of you aren't like the Pharisees. Your issue is not pride. Your issue is despair. Maybe you would love to be a Pharisee if you could only get your act together, you strive and you strive to be good, but you're self-aware enough to know how far you fall short. And so you live with constant discouragement, constant self-hatred, because at the end of the day, you're still looking for comfort in your works. You're just honest enough to not find it there. And what you need to hear is that your sin is actually even worse than you think. <laughs> right? 
that no matter how self-aware you are, your sin is actually even worse. Which means that the cross is that much greater. You don't have to be perfect to come near to Jesus. He has come near to you. And he is neither surprised nor impatient with your faults. He loves you. And he who begins a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. Believe, repent, follow. Now maybe others of you are more like the disciples. Where you're on the road with Jesus, you're walking in his grace. Learning from him even as you depend on his forgiveness daily. You don't obey to become accepted by God. You obey because in Christ you already are. And and if that's you, I would encourage you to come alongside the others. Come alongside our Pharisees. Come alongside our despairing ones. Encourage your brothers and sisters. Remind them of the gospel. Share what God is doing in you so that we can all be built up in love and increasingly believe Repent and follow to the glory of God and life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you love us as we are, but you do not leave us as we are. That you are showing us the way toward genuine humanness. And I pray, Lord, that we would believe and trust daily in what you have done on the cross. That we would bank everything that in, in those sleepless nights where we are, are wrecked by fear or doubt or guilt or shame, that we would not look for comfort in our own behavior, but in the cross. I pray that we would believe and I pray that we would re- repent, Lord, that we would recognize the ways of this world for what they are as shallow as ultimately unsatisfying, as ultimately destructive, that you would let us reject the idols of ambition and reckless pleasure and attention, whatever it is, that we would stop finding our hope in those things but recognize that that in all the promises that our, our culture gives us, these promises are, are bankrupt. And that we would turn toward new creation. I pray that we'd repent and I pray that we'd follow. And that we would see that one of your promises to us in the gospel is not just that you would save us from the penalty of sin, but that you would save us from its power. And that even now, Lord, we would trek out toward Jerusalem. We would start out toward a new creation and learn the way of Jesus. All by grace. Love you, Lord. Amen.